Spirit and in truth, God, we thank you for those who have gathered with us on this, the Lord's Day, to worship you and to honor you with our attention and with our giving and with our listening, uh, with our dedication to serving you. We thank you, God, for every person who helped to come set up this morning to uh, those who are serving in Mission Kids and Mission Toddlers this morning. Uh, we pray, Jesus, uh, just for our city, for our state, and for many people throughout the uh, country, God, who just endured uh, a lot of difficult weather over the last several days. And so, Jesus, we just ask you, Father, that you would uh, just continue to teach us even through these things and to sanctify us even through these things as well. And so, Lord, on this Lord's Day, specifically, Lord, I pray for the listeners who have come here to Mission Church. God, I pray that if there's a lost person that is here today, Jesus, that ultimately that you would save them, that you would bring them from death into life, that you would resurrect their dead lives, their, uh, that you would turn them from being children of wrath into children of God. And Lord, may you place your seal upon them with the power of the Holy Spirit, um, God, eternally uh, signifying that they are yours. And God, we just rejoice in that. And Lord, we pray for the believer today. We pray, Jesus, that you would speak to them, that you would encourage them, that you would challenge them. Lord, that you would um, allow them to evaluate their relationship with you in a powerful, powerful way, God, that would lead to transformation and to mission. And so, God, we are just asking you, Father, Lord, to humbly move through um, me, God, just this servant of yours. May you truly use my lips, my mouth, my words, my mind to um, preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in this place. Jesus, may you be lifted high in this place. May you be made much of in this place, Father. And uh, Lord, may no one leave here giving attention to anyone but you, Jesus. And so, Lord, we are thankful for what you're doing at Mission Church. May you continue to grow her and build her for your glory and for our good and the good of this city. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. If you're not already there, um, thank you guys for coming and joining with us here at Mission Church this morning. My name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission and get the opportunity of being our teaching and preaching pastor. And so... Thank you guys on behalf of those of us who call Mission Church our church home. Thank you for coming and hanging out with us this morning. Today, we will continue a sermon series called Jesus the Storyteller. And during this series, we're kind of exegetically working through several different of Jesus' parables to uncover uh, the truth that is behind them or the truth behind the truth. It's much like if you're a C.S. Lewis fan like I am in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's like stepping up to the wardrobe for the first time and opening the door and seeing that there's a whole new world behind that wardrobe in the anticipation of studying these things. These parables, these stories, um, reveal something that was once mysterious about Jesus and the kingdom of God and our lives. And so in an act of judgment, as we learned last week, uh, Jesus, uh, when speaking to the crowds, transitions the way that he talks to them. He goes from talking in these very straightforward statements, uh, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, I'm like this, God is like this, the kingdom of God is like this, and, and an act of judgment switches totally um, to speaking in code. Um, speaking in these parables, leaving many people who listen to them extremely confused, bored, um, even frustrated. 
Um, this transition of Jesus' ministry to the crowds um, caused many of those who once followed him to listen to him to leave. And what's miraculous about this is that it caused other people to draw very near to him and to his teaching. Uh, today we're going to kind of look at a trinity of, of parables, uh, one of them probably being the most popular parable, the parable of the prodigal son. But most importantly, kind of looking at this trinity, Jesus kind of gives us the entire trinity of movies all at once here in dealing with a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. Now each one of these parables that Jesus does consecutively um, kind of all have a very similar meaning, all right? And yet they're going to give us, Jesus is going to give us three different perspectives of looking at this truth and they're going to kind of you know, build up and climax in the story of the prodigal son. So, with me, in Luke chapter 15, um, these first few verses here, um, is we begin to see here in 15, um, this, this crowd, um, this crowd of people, they're following after Jesus, and the Bible tells us here, in verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were doing what? They're drawing near... To Jesus. Um, this is extremely important in understanding the context of these stories that Jesus is about to tell. Now, these tax collectors and outcasts, they were, uh, or sinners, they were social outcasts. Many of them were considered probably prostitutes, thieves, um, drunkards, all these sorts of things. And the tax collectors were some of those hated group of people in all of Israel, in all of the land, really. I mean, people hated tax collectors. I mean, when I say the word IRS right now, even in this room, it ticks off a lot of people. All right, But imagine for a moment that a Jewish tax collector was a person that is of Jewish descent who began to work for the Roman government. And in doing so for the Roman government, they would administer the tax or get the taxes that the Romans had placed upon the Israelites to help them build roads, cities, and just take money from them. And typically what would happen is, is these Jewish tax collectors would, would up the ante. They would up the price of the taxes, and whatever they could get people to pay above that price, then they would typically pocket that money. So they were kind of abusing their own people or robbing from their own people. So in the social class system of the time, you got lepers down here. Everybody know what a leper is? Like you touch them, oh, there goes my arm. I mean, it falls off. Their skin is falling off. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible disease. And right above them are tax collectors, all right? Um, it's like when we watch the news and we see that an American citizen has uh, left America and is now fighting for the Taliban or ISIS. You ever see those kind of people? And it happens. And every time we see it, a lot of us have a tendency to get really, how do you do that? Like, how does that all work out? And that's what's happening here with these people called the tax collectors. Now, what's interesting enough is that one of Jesus' only 12, one of his 12 disciples was actually a tax collector. All right? And uh, his name was Matthew. He also wrote the book or the gospel of Matthew. His name is also known as Levi. But Matthew was a tax collector, and the Bible even tells us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 28, that Matthew was like one day sitting on the side of the road or outside the camp or somewhere, and he's collecting taxes, all right? So he's in the moment of 
you know, stealing from people. He's hated. He's taking money from these people. Jesus walks up to this hated man and says, Matthew or Levi, follow after me. And immediately, the Bible tells us there in that passage in verse 28 of chapter 5, and leaving everything, he rose and followed Jesus. So imagine, you're taking money from people, Jesus shows up the scene, hey, you follow me, and you just go, and you follow after him. Okay? A lot of times today, we got to like, Come on, you can do it. Follow Jesus, follow Jesus. I'm, ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus really shows up in your life and says, hey, follow me, you drop your nets, you drop your money, you drop your way of life to follow after him. Okay, so this is what happens to Jesus. Jesus calls tax collectors, fishermen. He calls social myth, misfits, you know, to use modern terms. They were people that were picked last. They were weird. Um, not to offend anybody, but... They were skanks. That's what we called them when I was a kid. All right? They, these were not nice people. These were rednecks. All right? These were thugs. These are people that you stay away from. These were the people in high school um, that formed a community because they were so weird and no one else would hang out with them. So all the weird people got to... Anybody else do that in high school? Like, these are the really strange people and all the strange people congregate together. Some of you are that way. All right? You're those people. All right, so you have found a community of weird people to hang out with that are just as weird as you because all the popular kids won't do anything with you. All right, so that's what's happening. You're the paint your face. You know, when I was in high school, it was this whole anarchy thing, and people looked like homeless when I came to school. All right, anybody else? They, they look really rough. Like, they paint their faces, look like the crow. I mean, weird, weird stuff. You just automatically, they were probably some of the nicest people, but because of the way they looked, you automatically thought they do drugs. All right? Those kind of people are the people that Jesus says to follow after me. Those are the kind of people that are hanging out with Jesus. They're constantly leaning into Jesus. They're intrigued with Jesus. They're listening to Jesus. They're following Jesus. They're giving to Jesus. They're being transformed by Jesus. One thing's for sure, back then and now, sinners also knew how to throw a party. See, Christians, we haven't really figured this out yet. Alright? Like, Christian parties a lot of times look like Comic Con. A bunch of nerds walking around not knowing what to do. Alright? But thinking it's cool. Alright? We haven't really figured this out. I mean, let's just be honest. You've got to learn to laugh at yourself. Even Christians have to learn how to do that. Non-Christian parties are a lot more fun because we haven't figured out how to do it. Finally got an amen from a shaner. All right? I mean, it's, it's like they are. And, and non-Christians were constantly throwing these huge extravagant parties and guess who they're always inviting? Jesus. Jesus. Now, real quickly, Jesus wasn't a drunk, all right? And I don't think he was on top of a table with a corona. And he sure enough wouldn't put either of those on Facebook that he was doing it, all right? So we don't go, well, Jesus went, all right? I understand that. You ain't Jesus. You got to be very careful, all right? But we do need to learn how to celebrate better than we currently do. 
So Jesus was constantly being invited to these parties and these opportunities to hang out. All right. Now, the scripture also tells us here that there's another group of people. All right. So let me, let's paint it like this. Like the in crowd is pushed to the fringe and the fringes are pushed towards Jesus. We see this as it continues here. Jesus tells us that there's also like a fringe group that keeps peeking around the corner watching what's going on. All right. And these people are called the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're like the antithesis of, of the tax collectors and the sinners. The Pharisees, if you grew up in church, you may have sung a song because I said like this. I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not very fair, you see. See, I just proved how corny a lot of us Christians are. We come up with dumb songs like that. Or Sadducees, I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're very, very sad, you see. That's dumb, all right? But you get the picture. So you get these Pharisees. Judaism is kind of broke up into these major sects, kind of like how we have Baptists, Methodists, Pentecostals, Charismaniacs, whatever. Um, You see these pictures in Judaism of Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, and Essenes, who are never seen hardly. They're the Dead Sea Scrolls people. And so we see these groups of people, and at the, the top of the pecking order of those groups were the Pharisees. These dudes were militant at observing the Old Testament law and the extra teachings that the rabbis had created. They were also like the religious police. So they're walking around, not making sure that they're only doing what the law says, but also that everyone else around them is also following the laws and the traditions. They believe that the way that you get to God, the way that you experience salvation, the way that you are saved and go to heaven is strict, strict observance of all of the laws, 613 plus tradition, that we see inside of the Old Testament. So they're constantly walking around acting like this. And the Pharisees were in direct opposition with Jesus. They're constantly, we see through the Gospels, trying to catch Jesus doing something that goes against the law so that they could put Jesus in prison or even worse, have him killed. And guess what? They succeeded. They eventually succeeded. See, Jesus was always eating, hanging out with the crazy people, the weird people, the strange people. And to the Pharisees, um, and to just the people in general, um, eating a meal with somebody during that time period was very different than us just eating a meal with people today. Eating a meal then meant that you, uh, you welcomed them into your life, that you accepted them for who they were. We call this idea of table fellowship, that it's, a, it's a, an honoring. Hey, I, what is mine is yours. What yours is mine. Like we're together. We accept one another. We take care of one another. And the Pharisees believed that eating with people like this um, did two things. One, that it was unpleasing to God. And secondly, that it would make you unclean. All right? So in Luke chapter 15, the Pharisees say this, that, um, that this man eats, this man receives and eats with sinners. Now go back to Luke chapter 5 when we're talking about Jesus talking with Matthew. Again, Matthew tax collector, newly following after Jesus, but Matthew's probably got some extra money. Luke chapter 5 tells us that he throws this huge feast 
All right, huge party. There's the best, uh, let's, lamb, I guess they would probably eat. Some kosher food there, some great juicy juice because they wouldn't drink wine, right? And so they throw this huge, huge party, and guess who's there? Jesus is there hanging out with these people. Guess who's also there? The tax collectors. The Bible tells us there in Matthew chapter 5 that this is a great feast at his house, and there's large company of who? Tax collectors and sinners, others reclining at the table, listening in. You get this picture that they're all hanging on every word of this man named Jesus. It goes on to tell us that the Pharisees witnessed this and grumbled against him saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus was constantly doing this. And it drove the Pharisees crazy. They hated it. They complained. They grumbled against Jesus at what he was doing. Even in Luke chapter 7, it tells us that Jesus was doing this, that he was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And essentially they accused Jesus of being a drunkard and a glutton because he is in the presence of these people and that he is eating with them. Notice, what are these tax collectors and sinners doing? They're drawing near to Jesus. While those who are religious who are trying to work them way, their way to heaven, the church people, what are they doing to Jesus? Grumbling and complaining. See, these parables connect like they did last week. As we learned last week, Jesus throughout many of these parables is calling those who have ears, those are spiritual ears to hear. The parables will draw some to Jesus and it will simultaneously cause others to repel from Jesus. Isn't this interesting? I mean, Jesus turns teaching up on its end. I mean, he is literally speaking on purpose in such a way to confuse a large group of people. And we're constantly being taught in communication classes to speak clearly so that everyone will understand. And yet that's not what Jesus is doing. The Jesus and the kingdom of God is a way of, again, turning things upside down. Like, for instance, um, if you really want to be great, the Bible tells us to be low. If, if you really want to be first, then the Bible tells us to do what? To be last. This is totally countercultural to what is being taught to these people, and I would say to you as well as what being taught to us. So Jesus, sitting amongst these people, Pharisees listening in, grumbling and complaining, not that church people ever do that, are grumbling and complaining against Jesus, and all of a sudden Jesus breaks out into the craziest three stories these people have ever heard. This is what he says. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep. Imagine you're talking to somebody and all of a sudden they start talking in stories like this. You would think they're weird, strange, and you would leave. They need some medication. All right? So Jesus, he does that very thing. In the parable, we're introduced to a, a shepherd. This shepherd has how many sheep? He has a hundred sheep. If a shepherd during this time has a hundred sheep, then this tells us something very specific. It tells us that this man is extremely wealthy. The Bible also tells us here in this passage that he leaves the 99 behind to go after this one lost sheep. Now, haven't you ever wondered why the Bible does not compare us to dogs and cats? I'm so thankful personally that he does not compare us to cats because cats and people who own them, sorry, are weird. <laughs> All right? Now, a dog, though, a dog is a man's best friend. 
All right, a dog is very compliant. Um, but the Bible never compares us to a dog or a cat or a lion even or a bear. Oh my, all right? I mean, he never compares us to these sorts of animals. You can read stories all the time about cats and dogs who will disappear for years from their homes and make it back. And people walk out of their home. And there's Spot. <laughs> Spot's been gone for three. I mean, you're thinking pet cemetery stuff, all right? But there is Spot. I mean, there's even been reports of animals somehow getting on the back of vehicles, traveling through states, and eventually making it back to their home. Now, that's a smart, smart animal. And if you've ever watched, like, Planet Earth and to see the Discovery Channel on, on, like, migration, there are some extremely smart animals on this planet. Sheep's not one of them. <laughs> Dumb. A sheep is not smart at all, all right? Other animals are given an internal instinct to find their way home. A sheep doesn't have that instinct. All right. Did you know that sheep, they're not smart animals. They're notorious for getting lost. Um, they can't find their way back home at all. Um, they're what is called directionless. Sheep are prone to wander, and they do not have their, the capacity to even find their way home. If you put a sheep in a perfect environment, as Psalm 23 says, a place with you know, green pastures and still waters. All right? if, you, if you take a sheep and you put that sheep into a perfect, perfect, perfect environment, eventually that sheep is so dumb it will wander off. It's in them. Their natural state is to drift. Everything they need is directly in front of them, and yet their belief is, is that the grass is greener on the other side. Now, how many times do you see or have ever heard of a wild sheep? Thank you. You have it. Whenever you see a sheep, now I'm not talking about goats, rams, those are different animals. I'm talking about a sheep. Man, you know, big woolly stuff, you're wearing a sweater, there you go, all right? You don't hear of these things called wild sheep. Why? Because a sheep, or all sheep, must have a shepherd to survive. They must have it. It's the only reason that a sheep will stay alive on, a pl on this planet is if it has a shepherd who literally micromanages every move that sheep makes. It's crazy. Without a shepherd, they'll starve to death. Without a shepherd, did you know that a sheep will walk directly off a cliff? Not like, oh, don't fall. Like, no. Like, oh, there's a cliff. Ooh. And you know what all the other sheep will do? Follow it. There's a record a few years ago of something like 400 sheep jumped off a cliff. Following it. And all the, the shepherds could do is watch them. Dummies. Just jumping off of these cliffs. Now, growing up, we often heard from our parents, if somebody jumps off a cliff, will you? And what do you say? No. It depends on how high the cliff is. <laughs> I mean, that's, we say dumb stuff like that. But the, the thing is, is that sheep 
wheel. They will literally follow each other off a cliff. A cliff. When the sheep wanders off from the shepherd and the rest of the flock, they are defenseless and have no way of protecting themselves from predators. Um, left to themselves, a sheep is nothing but a bag of corn nuts for its predators. That's a snack. All right. They have no claws. They have no horns. Their teeth are made for eating grass. They cannot run fast. Literally, when being attacked, all they can do is get into a big circle, run in circles, and hope that the animal gets tired of eating your friends before it eats you. When's the last time you've watched the news? Man killed by ravenous sheep. You've not heard it. Because they can't do anything without a shepherd. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. If you take a domesticated animal and put them into the wild, their, primary, their primal instinct, even if it's a domesticated dog, you put it in the wild long enough and it will become a wild dog. If you do that to a sheep, never happens. Ever. And yet we are constantly being compared to a sheep. Now, how many shepherds would go after a lost sheep? All of them would. All right? It's your, your livelihood. It's how you make money. It's how you take care of your family. With this in view, the shepherd leads 99, the Bible tells us, to go get one. He risks his life. He's traveling over treacherous lands to find one sheep. Upon finding that one sheep, how does the Bible tell us that he responds? He rejoices. He rejoices. He has gone, risked his life to find this one disobedient sheep. And the Bible tells us there in this passage, in verse 6, rejoice. Or in verse 5, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Now, how many of you ever had a dog not do what it's supposed to do? We used to have this dog once, and if you ever got outside, it was over. Terrible. And lo and behold, when we're in Arizona, it would be time for me to take the kids to go to school, and that dog would get out. And I'd have to chase that dog. I mean, you're yelling at that dog, Hey, Cooper! Come back, Cooper! All right? And when I finally got that dog, since this has been recorded, I was not happy. There was not rejoicing. I wasn't like, Oh, I love you, Cooper. You've come home. I'm like, the next time, you're never coming home. All right? And yet the Bible tells us here that this shepherd towards the sheep is like, there's my disobedient Lambert right there. I love you, Lambert. I'm so glad. I'm, I'm joyful. Some of y'all from childhood, you'll get Lambert later. All right? So you, you get this picture of this beautiful shepherd coming to this disobedient sheep. And what does he do? He's excited that he's found it. And literally, he takes that sheep. Or that sheep. Wow. That'd be an interesting picture of a sheep with a grown man thrown around his back. <laughs> All right. Wow. And we digress. All right. So we, we get to this picture here of this, this sheep who can't find its way home. All right would get lost in a single-room house kind of situation here. Terrible, directionless. And this, this shepherd who so loves this one, he's got 90 more, 99 more in the field, but he so loves this one that he risks his life. And the only way that he can safely get that sheep back home 
is, is to take that sheep and to place probably a 100-pound sheep over his shoulders and to take it back. Because it's not a situation where you could say, all right, Lambert, follow me. Let's go home. Because the sheep won't do it. The shepherd must do all of the work upon getting home. What does the shepherd do? Hey, Buford, Bubba, come over. Let's throw a party. I found a disobedient sheep. It's cause for celebration. This is a ridiculous story. It's ridiculous. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems a, like a lot to do for a dumb animal. A really dumb animal. But not to a shepherd. See, um, Jesus then goes on, what does he say? Just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Kind of pauses for effect. And then what's he do? He keeps on going. The parable of the lost coin. Without skipping a beat, Jesus keeps going. He says, in this parable, in this section that Lindsay read for us today, it says that we meet a woman. And unlike the shepherd, isn't wealthy. This is a poor woman. She has ten silver coins, which is equivalent of about ten days worth of wages. If you live in America, compared to the rest of the world, I want you to know that you are extremely wealthy. We have a tendency to walk past coins laying on the parking lot all the time. It was interesting, I had to go to Walmart, which is like going to hell before going to church. All right, I visit there, just keep me humble. And so I go there, and the parking lot is still all covered in ice. And as I'm walking, um, and again, I know that I'm preaching this text and everything today, and literally behind the ice on the pavement is a shiny penny. And I immediately go, and I get out my key, and I'm in the parking lot, chiseling out of the ice this penny. Because I couldn't help but think about this woman. Most of the time, we just walk past those. Alright? Because we got a jar of them at the house. Alright? Uh, we give a penny, take a penny. Alright? We don't really think much about money and these sorts of things. But lo and behold, if I had a vacuum and I went out here to our parking lot, I could suck up a bunch of change. Alright? That is really insignificant to most of us. But if you're poor... Every penny you've got means something. This woman was poor. After losing the coin, the, the, the Bible tells us here that she frantically looks throughout her house. There's not a square inch of this house that she is not searching. See, many of these homes, adobe kind of mud-framed houses, didn't have windows in them. They just had a door in them. So even during the daytime, a lot of times they would be completely dark, probably dirt floor covered in hay. And this woman has lost a small coin. And the Bible tells us she, she's searching. She lights a lamp. And you get this picture of her picking out every inch of this floor. She is sweeping through there because she must have this coin. Have you ever been there? You ever lost something? Like really lost something? Like an important document? An engagement ring? Um, or something that belonged to somebody else? but they were letting you borrow it? Or that sweaty feeling that you get when, when you're in high school or at school and 
um, your teacher says turn into your homework and you've got your backpack beside of you and you know you did it, but you start, anybody else do this? This is every day for me in high school. And so you start going through your backpack and you start sweating and she's standing like right here and you're looking, oh Lord Jesus. I mean, it's the only time you've prayed since dinner. All right. And so you're, you're looking through your backpack and you man, you have got to find it. And that moment when you find that wadded up math paper and you're like, here you go. <laughs> All right. Um, you're what? So relieved when you finally find this. Man, I've been, obs- I've been obsessed trying to find something. Man, I've been frantic in, in finding something. And yet, man, that emotion and joy when you find it, even if it's the dumbest little thing, when you find it is over overwhelming. Again, we see something of great value is lost by a person, is found by a person. And then what does the passage tell us here? What does she do? Verse 9. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this woman finds a coin. What does she do? Hey, Bernice. Get over to my house. I found a penny. I found the coin. Let's throw a party. All right? Let's, let's get some wings. Dip them in sauce with some ranch. Call all the friends over. Have some root beer. Throw a party. Rejoice with me. Let's celebrate. I found the penny. And then Jesus says, it's the same way in heaven when somebody repents. And what's he do? Just keeps talking. I imagine just for sarcasm, because this is what I would do. Because I'm not very nice sometimes. Is that Betty never looks at him? That's reading, that's thus saith Eric, not thus saith the Lord. But there are other moments where Jesus does do that to the Pharisees, like when he's writing in the sand. You get this picture that Jesus is writing in the sand when they catch the woman, the same group of people catch this woman in adultery, and Jesus bends down and he starts playing tic-tac-toe or something in the sand. And he's kind of talking, or he's even looking at the, the adulterous woman while all of these are religious people, but he's not talking to her. He's talking to them. Be interesting. All right, so we get this passage, and, and since we've already read this passage, and a lot of people know about this story of the prodigal son, um, I'm going to kind of paraphrase the first part of it, and then we're going to read the last part of it. So in this third parable of the lost, this trilogy, if you will, is the parable of a lost son or the lost son. And we learn at the very beginning of this passage in verse 11 that there is this man, and he's got two sons. How many sons? Two sons, all right? And the younger one goes to his father, and this is what he essentially says. He says, Dad, I wish you were dead, all right? Because when do you get your inheritance? When somebody dies. 
So this son, this young son, probably a teenager, goes to his dad and says to him, essentially, Dad, I wish that you were dead because I want all the money I'm going to get when you die. And if I have to wait till you die, then to spend my inheritance, maybe I'll be too old to do that. Like, I want it right now. And for whatever reason, the Bible tells us, guess what the dad does? He divvies it out. Since he's the second son, and not the oldest son, he probably received about one-third of the wealth. Oldest son always got the most, all right? And so we, we see lots of stories about that in Scripture and just culturally. So he probably got like one-third of all of the wealth. Essentially, wanting the father dead, he hands out this inheritance. And the Bible tells us here that this young man journeys to a, a, a country, a far country, um, and as long as the money was good, guess what? Life was good. Life was good. Money has a tendency to draw people, doesn't it? Money has a, a tendency um, to allow you to, to do some things. Somebody once told me, money will never make you happy, but the lack of money will make you miserable. So this young man has gotten a lot, a lot of money. I mean, if you look at the social elites um, of our time and culture and what's going on in Hollywood, what happens to a lot of these young girls and guys when their parents are worth billions and gives them money at an early age? They have a tendency to go wild and crazy and for some reason we make them famous. Which sounds ridiculous. Alright? So this young man, he goes and he squanders his life. He squanders his life inheritance on reckless living. Life became so bad for this young man that the Bible tells us that he hired a citizen from that country. That means he was probably a Gentile. Do Jews and Gentiles mix during this time? No. And so he allows himself to become a servant of a Gentile. And how is he serving this Gentile? He's working in a pig lot. Do Jews and pigs mix? No. If you touch a pig, you're unclean. I mean, imagine the lack of bacon in these people's lives. All right? And so you see here that this man, his life has gotten so bad that he's now a slave to a Gentile dog and he is also touching and working with pigs. He becomes so hungry that he wishes that he could even eat the, the food that is being fed to these pigs. And it, the Bible even says, like, he seems to have all of these friends, but now the Bible tells us there in that passage, but no one would even give him anything. So in this situation, desperate, he, he wishes that he could do something else. He wishes that he could go back to his father. From riches to rags, this young man now, his life now in a ditch, humbled by this terrible choices and remembering how good he had it at his father's house, the young man comes to himself and realizes it would be better for him to be a slave at his father's house than to remain in the pig pen. So, he humbles himself and he goes to his father's house. And so when he comes up to his house and he comes up with an apology and starts this journey home, the Bible tells us here in this passage that while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. And if you don't know the story, immediately you're thinking, oh, daddy is not going to be happy. And yet that's not what the Bible tells us. 
The Bible tells us that while he was a long way off, that the father saw him, and that you, this picture them, him running to him, and the son starts to apologize, and the daddy interrupts his apology. And what's he say? Get the robe. Get the robe for my son. Get the ring of my seal that this is my son. Get the, get the ring. Kill the fatted calf. Call all of our friends. Call all of our neighbors because my son who is dead is now alive. My son who is lost now is found. You get this huge picture of compassion and, and just them being together and celebrating life together. If you look at the front of your weekly very quickly... This is one of my favorite paintings in all of the world. When I was a missionary in, um, for Campus Crusade for Christ in Minsk, Belarus, I got the opportunity to go to St. Petersburg, and there is a large um, historical museum there called the Hermitage, and inside of it are Picasso's Monet's. But this, ladies and gentlemen, is my favorite painting, and my only regret during that time is that I did not sit there for hours looking at it, because it's absolutely huge. But this is a painting by Rembrandt called The Prodigal Son. And in that painting, you see all of the characters. You see the tattered young man who has a scarred feet and a tattered sandal on one. You see the father who is old. You see the son. You see servants. Even this is a little art history for you because I'm an art nerd. Look at his hands. One of his hands is a masculine hand. The other is a feminine hand. It was done on purpose. Okay? Look at it on color online when you get home. It was done on purpose to show the masculine view of God, the importance of understanding God is our Father, that He is that, and yet He is the comforting, nurturing, loving, compassionate as well. We see this beautiful picture taking place. And let's all face it, ladies and gentlemen, how many of you guys grew up in church hearing this story? This is where we like to end it. This is where we like to end the story because we like to go, what? Man, I'm that kid. I was lost. I was wild. I was crazy. And Jesus saves, right? And then we say, come to the altar. Those of you who are prodigal, Come to Jesus because He welcomes you home. And yet, typically, when Jesus speaks in parables, did you know that the last thing that Jesus says is always the most important? It's a hermeneutic for teaching you how to read the parables. What Jesus always says last are the most important parts of His parables. Listen to what He says here. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the field, and he heard music and dancing. And he had called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this 
son of yours, Cain, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and to be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the story is really not about the younger brother. The story is actually about the older brother. The older son, the older brother is the one who stayed home. He worked. He obeyed his father. He comes toward the house and he hears that this party is going on. Some of the servants tell him again that the son is home and the daddy has welcomed him back in and they've killed a fatted calf and they're having this great, great party. Everyone is rejoicing inside of the house. They're celebrating everyone but who? The older brother. How's the elder brother? He's grumbling. He's complaining. He's angry. And he refuses to celebrate. While pouting outside of the party, the father catches wind. Then he goes out to speak to him. The older son begins to grumble and complain to his father. He is jealous. He is angry. He has a sense of entitlement. He has remained faithful the entire time while his brother squandered away his inheritance. Son, he says, you have always been with me. What I have is yours. So, what do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about the kingdom of God? What do we learn about ourselves? The first thing is this. We are the sheep and Jesus is the true and better shepherd. We are the sheep and Jesus is the true and better shepherd. See, sin has left us ignorant. Sin has left us defenseless. Sin has left us directionless. Like the old hymn says, Come thy fount. We are prone to wonder. Lori, fill it. We are prone to leave the God that we love. Brothers and sisters, sin has left you and I dead. It has left us lost. It has left us helpless and hopeless. Which is a true statement? Repent and God shows you grace. Or God shows you grace... And then you repent. Hopefully you understand the gospel to realize it is the second one. You do not repent and then God go, here's grace. That's not the way it works. That's the way we like to make it work. But that is not what the gospel says. Today, may you be reminded of the gospel of grace. God isn't calling you to come to repentance after he, he, he does that after he has bestowed his grace and his mercy upon it. And in view of that grace, what do you do? You repent. Hopefully you understand this. Hopefully you get this. The Pharisees believed like all other major religions of that day and today that one must first make the first move to receive God's grace. But, ladies and gentlemen, that is not the gospel. As the word Philip Ryken says this, we are lost when we are lost. When we have wandered from the far hills of disobedience, when we are alone and afraid, when we are wounded and weak, when we are defenseless against our enemies, when we are unable to save ourselves, it is just then that Jesus comes to rescue us. Jesus will not return, ladies and gentlemen, until he has saved and rescued every one of his lost sheep. God has many lost sheep. But they are still 
His sheep. They've gone astray. Why? Because of the fall. And God sends the good shepherd, Jesus, to rescue all of His sheep. And He tells us that He will not lose any of them. He tells us that in John. He tells us that in Isaiah chapter 53, in Ezekiel chapter 34. Every one of His sheep hold infinite value to who? To Jesus. The Gospel is that Jesus comes to heaven, excuse me, from heaven to earth through the shadow of death for us and redeems us from the pits of hell and carries us home. The weight of our sin rests upon His shoulders. But brothers and sisters, Jesus will assure that we will make it home even if it costs Him His life. And that's exactly what He does. He lays down His life for who? His sheep. John 10, 11. The saving of a life is not only the joy of Jesus, but it should be the joy of the community as well. What happens in each one of these stories? When the lost person is found, when the dead person is made alive, celebrate! We need to celebrate what is taking place here. We need to throw a party. These people have been rescued and the same should be sent of us as believers as well, that we are celebrating the transformation that God has done in people's lives. Where is the church that celebrates? Where is the church that sees this actually happen? And how do they respond to it? And every time we see a baptism, it should be a party and a worship experience. Every time that we hear of someone being saved, it should be an all-out party for what God has done in that person's life. And yet many times, ladies and gentlemen, let's be honest, it's not. The next thing that we learn is that we are the lost coin and Jesus is the true and better lady. Jesus tells us that he is the light of the world who seeks diligently until he finds every lost child of God. Be encouraged today. Jesus will later tell us in Luke chapter 19 that the whole reason why He came is for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus brings what was once lost and in darkness He brings that into light. And upon finding it does not become frustrated and, and, and guilt us into questions like why are you doing that? He knows why you're doing that. You're a sinner. And that's what sinners do. That's what sheep do. So he rejoices and throws a party and invites people to come. The lost son. Now, the implications of this story can be easily, easily, easily missed. First, this is the easiest thing to see. Is we are that younger son. Many of us, that is our story. We looked at God, and we have told Him, and we still fight this temptation. We're better than you are. We want all of this wealth, and we're going to do with it whatever we please. My job is mine. My money is mine. My time is mine. Even my church is mine. I want it. I can live however I want I am better at being God than you are at being God in my life. How many of you guys have ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty, right? Jim Carrey gets the opportunity to play God for a little bit, and he ruins everything. 
This is exactly what each and every one of us do as well. We destroy our lives and we destroy the lives of everyone around us. That's easy for us to see. The second character that we also see that is, is maybe um, not as easy to see the full um, strength of what Jesus is saying here. How many of you guys know what the word prodigal means? Lost, right? We get this idea is this rebellious lost son. That the word prodigal means a wasteful expenditure. It, it means rec- recklessly spendthrift. It means one who spends or, or gives lavishly and foolishly. I would be in agreement by Dr. Tim Keller, who's been very influential in my life, pastor, teacher. He wrote a book on this. You should read it. It's called Prodigal God. He contends in his thesis here that the true prodigal isn't the first son. That the true prodigal of this story is really God. Because what does God do in this story? The Father represents God. God eagerly awaits the return of His children. And there, upon them arriving, what's He do? He puts a new robe on them. He gives them a ring. He throws a lavish feast, a, a lavish party. He lavishes us with His grace And He welcomes us. He mourns when we walk away, but He holds nothing back when we return to Him. God is a prodigal God. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to understand this. God is for you. And if God is for you, then who can be against you? God is not this evil ogre. I mean, think about how prodigal God is. Think about how reckless God is with his spending. That the book of Revelation tells us that that what we consider to be more precious than anything on this planet, he makes asphalt. That's a pretty reckless way to spend a lot of gold, don't you think? And yet, what we hold most precious, he uses as asphalt. Something for us to walk upon. Why? Because God is lavishly doing this. He is a loving Father, a compassionate Father. He draws near to us. He wants us and He spares no expense at making sure that you and I arrive home safely. Even so much that He has sent His Son to die for ignorant, dumb, lost, dead sheep. He does that. Look at, I mean, He gives His life. For the sake, He gives His Son for the sake of these people. God is a prodigal. The third thing that we have to ask ourselves then is this. What about the older brother? I would suggest to you that the main character in all of these stories and what it's ultimately leading up to is the one that is most often forgotten. And it's the older brother. The older brother is furious at the father celebrating the return of the lost son. He, like many of us, can have a sense of entitlement. Think about it. How would you feel? You're a good boy. You're a goody-goody. You stayed at the house. You did what your father told you to do. The younger son was rebellious and sinful. 
Do you know who's really lost in this story? The older brother. The younger brother was lost. But he's what? Found. The older brother who stayed home is still lost. Because what we see in this story is what did the older brother really want? The exact same stuff that the younger brother wanted. He didn't want his daddy. He didn't want the father. He wanted what the father could give him. The brother's not celebrating. He wants nothing to do with a sinner. Who is Jesus talking to in these parables? The Pharisees. What are the Pharisees doing? Grumbling and complaining. They're mad. They're upset. They're staying away from sinners. You guys party in there with Jesus. We're staying out here. And this is what Jesus is getting to. This is where it gets really interesting. In the first story, we see a sheep is lost and a shepherd finds it. Then there's a party. In the second story, we see a coin that is lost and then a lady finds it. Then there's a party. In the third story, a son is lost. He returns home and then the father throws a party. Does anyone notice what is missing from the third story? No one's looking for the younger son. No one is looking for him. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is pointing to two things very important that you need to get here this morning. Jesus is pointing to the Pharisees and He's saying this to them. You, ladies and gentlemen, are not concerned with the lost. You don't care about lost people. You can say it's harsh because it is. But it's nonetheless true. He's saying to these Pharisees, man, they churched it up. They, they know the Bible. They can sing some songs. They attend regularly. But he's looking at these people who think they have it all together and he's staring them in the eyes and he's saying to them through these stories, you don't care about lost people because if you did, you would do whatever it takes. You would risk your lives to seek and save the lost as I have through Jesus. That you would celebrate with them. That you would eat with them. That you would welcome them when they came into the church. When they came into your life. When you're working with them in the cubicles next to you. Whatever it is, you would care about them and the gospel so much that you could do what you would do whatever it takes so that they would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying that in this sermon. Jesus is saying that in this parable. He's saying you're not seeking and celebrating the loss who have repented and turned home. You want what I have to offer, but you're missing the mission that I have to give. You're missing the point. See, the Pharisees represented the older brother. The second thing that Jesus is saying. In the first story, Jesus is the good shepherd. 
In the second story, Jesus is the woman who is looking for the lost coin. But where is Jesus in the last parable? Jesus in this last parable, when he starts talking about the older son, is pointing to himself. And he said, he's saying this, you're a terrible older brother. But I am the true and better older brother. See, ladies and gentlemen, if you'll read Genesis to Revelation, there's a real screwy situation that keeps happening over and over and over and over and over again. There are older brothers who are all about themselves and younger brothers that usually end up having to worship the younger sibling. This is majorly a a cultural issue and problem. The younger brother was supposed to be the daddy after daddy is dead. He's supposed to lead the family. Even if, a, if an older brother was to die and he was married, the younger brother is then to take his wife as his own wife. And if she gets pregnant, guess what? That firstborn son is declared to be the older dead brother's biological son. And for the first time since Genesis chapter 4 when we see this whole older brother, younger brother scenario play out through the scripture. It is finally fixed in Jesus when he declares through a parable, I am the true and better. I am the real older brother. And I'm setting this straight and I'm making this Right. Questions in our conclusion, and I'm done. I want you to think about these this week. One, are you seeking and saving, or are you seeking after lost people? Are you seeking after lost people? Second, are you celebrating? Or are you grumbling? Do you celebrate with your church? Do you celebrate with lost people? Or are you just a grumbler and complainer? It's interesting how much silence there will be in people until you do something in the church that they don't like. Then you'll hear from all kinds of people you never hear a word from. It's important. And Jesus is speaking to those things. We, have you ever noticed how sometimes people who have been in church and claim to be followers of Jesus act the least like a follower of Jesus? What's up with that? We get churched up or something. We get religious. We're all battling that. We all attend, again, we're all prone to wander toward religiosity or to extreme liberalism. We're constantly all facing those battles. It's a daily struggle for me to be one of those or the other. And Jesus has called us to be in Him. So do you celebrate or do you complain? Do you grumble or do you celebrate? Are you seeking after the lost? On your college campus, the people that you work with, your neighbors. Last thing. Are you religious? Or do you truly have a relationship with Jesus? Because ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know Jesus saves both of those people. He saves the younger brother who's rebellious. But Jesus also saves the religious jerk 
Both of those people need Jesus. He's the good shepherd. And he's laid down his life. Confess, repent, and believe on this day and every day forward. Stand with me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for this opportunity, Lord, to worship you. We thank you, God, that you are the good shepherd.